I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 155. You know, we've concentrated on several things so far related to the Garrison investigation and the Clay Shaw trial that were important precursors, environmental factors that are absolutely critical in evaluating all of the evidence in the entire story of the Garrison saga. But now that we have done that, it's time to turn to the story. And the story is a long and complicated one. And because of that, I suppose I need to back the tape up a little bit and give an overview and chronology of the Garrison investigation and describe the main events and do that from the 50,000-foot level. So that is what this episode and the next one is all about. It's a short primer and overview of the saga that is the Jim Garrison investigation and the Clay Shaw trial. I don't think I've ever packed more into a couple of overview episodes more than you are going to hear when listening to both of them. So listen closely. Some of the points may be a slight repeat of topics we've already discussed in the first couple of Garrison episodes. Accordingly, I will try to keep all of this very brief. I think hearing this now, though, before we get any further along, will help everyone better understand the progression of events and the expanse of the events around what happened in this action-packed chapter of the passion play that is the Garrison story and how all the pieces fit together. And then, of course, in subsequent episodes, I'll take some of these topics and tell their story in more detail. There are a lot of players in this saga, and there are too many to articulate here without truly interrupting the flow of the conversation. So what I have done is to add a bonus episode that reads a brief biography of everyone mentioned and more, including principal members of Garrison's investigative team. So if you like, listen to that one first if you need to. Otherwise, time to get going here. Well, almost. Before we get started, I want to underscore something. Garrison never charged anyone in this case with murdering the president. He had some ideas about who did it, but in truth, he simply did not know who murdered the president. The names of the men who sat up there in the book depository or behind the grassy knoll or inside the Daltex building or shoot if you listen to Garrison in the sewer hole along Elm Street or somewhere else in a forward position ahead of the president's limousine. In the end, no one before or since that moment has a definitive on that. Although some of the investigators on the Garrison team will tell you that it was no mere coincidence that within days of David Ferry's dying in New Orleans, Eladio Del Valle would receive an axe to the head in Miami. More on that part of the story to come. But the point is the garrison had no one to charge with the murder itself. And more importantly, the shooting didn't occur in New Orleans. So murder being a state crime, as we know, garrison had no jurisdiction over the actual murder itself. 
That was a Dallas event, and Dallas had jurisdiction over that. But what he did have jurisdiction over was the conspiratorial actions that took place in New Orleans to plan the murder. And that fit nicely with the limited evidence he did have. Now, let's be frank here. Planning a murder still has to be linked to a murder. And in Garrison's investigation, that really never happened. The case for that was weak from the beginning. But the loss of key witnesses like Eladio Del Valle may have changed things. We really don't know. As a result, the charges that were levied against Shaw were, like murder, a state crime. They were conspiracy to commit murder, not the murder charge itself. And the conspiracy charge carried a lesser sentence. And of course, the concept here is that you don't have to pull the trigger. You just have to be part of the larger conspiratorial element. As a result, the charges that were levied against Shaw were, like murder, a state crime. They were a conspiracy to commit murder, not the murder charge itself. And the conspiracy charge carried a lesser sentence, not less than a year and no more than 20 years under Louisiana law. And surely for this crime, the maximum sentence would have been delivered. And with Shaw in his late 50s at the time of the trial, well, it was likely to be a life sentence or close to a life sentence. So with that in mind, let us begin. First, we have already described that Garrison's involvement in the investigation really began almost immediately after the assassination in 1963 when the pistol-whipping incident between Jack Martin and Guy Manister bubbled to the surface and Martin made phone calls afterward that quickly circulated and made their way to Garrison's investigators and then to Garrison himself. It pointed straight at David Ferry at that moment. Whether it was Martin just getting back at Ferry will never be known. But nevertheless, Garrison acted swiftly and turned Ferry over to the FBI as a person of interest or witness. The investigation by the FBI was really perfunctory in nature and led nowhere at that moment. And at least partially because the narrative was already being formed around the lone gunman. And there was no compelling oversight at the FBI to push harder and do any more than what they did. Now, they did interview 20 witnesses at the time looking for links and they found nothing. <laughs> Imagine that. And you won't be surprised to find that years later, the HSCA concluded that the work done by the original investigative agencies, mostly the FBI, on ferry at that moment was insufficient. Garrison and his team all but forgot about the assassination investigation after the Warren report was issued until Garrison found himself in a chance discussion on an airplane in late 1966 with uh, then-Senator Russell Long. We chronicled this in a recent episode. The senator convinced him that there was more to the story. It was enough to get Garrison focused on swiftly obtaining and reading all 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report. Once he dove into it, the conclusions that Garrison made were simple. The mounds of evidence that were contained in the Warren Commission report were there to compel public confidence, but he also now knew that his own 
close examination of what was there had revealed that these mounds of evidence contained a pattern, a pattern designed to do one thing, to make the case for a lone gunman. But the very thing that was designed to compel public credibility of the report, the sheer volume of evidence gathered and accumulated, actually helped to make the whole thing fall apart. You see, as a trained eye, Garrison began to see that there was clear contradictions in the evidence and places where witnesses made clear assertions under oath that were contrary to the lone gunman theory. And the more he looked at what was in the documents and the more he discussed them with others, including his own investigative staff and people like Mark Lane, the more convinced he was that there really was much more potentially to this story. And because so much of it happened in New Orleans, Oswald was from New Orleans. In his view, it fell upon him to figure it out. Obviously, Garrison was not the first Warren Commission critic or conspiracy theorist. But the significance of all of this at that moment in our country was that he was the first man in an official law enforcement capacity in the United States to step forward and try to further the investigation, the investigation of the president's murder. This important point should not be lost when evaluating Garrison's legacy. In reading the Warren Commission documents, he soon realized that there were other elements of the investigation that had been dealt with at the federal level in New Orleans, right in his own backyard, and right around the time of the assassination. Things that his office had previously not been involved with, but that were significant to the case. The most important of these items were the events surrounding Dean Andrews. We're going to do a full episode on Andrews for sure, but for now, I am going to just set the stage. Andrews was a local attorney in New Orleans who had previously been approached by Oswald to represent him on some minor legal matters, including his undesirable discharge from the military and other immigration matters related to Lee's wife, Marina. Andrews was actually in the hospital sick on the day of the assassination and over that assassination weekend. There he lie in a hospital bed at the Hotel Du. Yes, that is not a hotel. It's sort of a French-derived nomenclature for a local New Orleans hospital. And during his stay, he received a call from an individual requesting that Andrews go to Dallas and represent Oswald now that Oswald had been apprehended for the murders of Officer Tippett and the president. Andrews was not able to go to Dallas because of his medical circumstance, but he called another lawyer and a friend of his, Sam Monk Zeldin. Zeldin was there in town and the two of them would discuss the possibility of this gentleman substituting for Andrews. Ultimately, no one had to go to Dallas and defend Oswald because by that Sunday morning, Oswald had been murdered by Jack Ruby. But Dean Andrews, at that moment, knew the significance of this request. And so, Andrews reported the incident to the FBI the request to represent Oswald. In a November 29th FBI report, a report dated one week after the assassination, 
Dean Andrews was said to have identified the man that had called him to represent Oswald. It was Clay Bertrand. Subsequent to his conversation with the FBI, Andrews would be called to testify before the Warren Commission. He told the story under oath, very unequivocally then, that he had been called by Clay Bertrand to represent Oswald. All of those discussions became written records and later included in the Warren Commission report. By the time the Warren Commission had gotten around to taking his testimony, there were some oddities that began to creep into that version of the story. More on that later. But in Andrew's case, too, and like so many of the documented leads memorialized in the Warren report, they just sat there, dangling in the wind, with no real interrogatory follow-up taken during the testimony. And eventually, after Garrison got his hands on a full set of the Warren report documents and read these particular documents on Andrew's testimony, he initiated a search for this mystery man. Clay Bertrand. Who was this man? Who would have such a vested interest in the defense of Oswald that he would call Dean Andrews to represent Oswald? And to make it even more bizarre, and no offense to Dean Andrews, but this jive-talking New Orleans attorney was not professionally fit to represent anyone in a murder case or cases, let alone this one making the question of motivation perhaps even more tied into circumstance and relationship. And of course, Garrison would immediately wonder where this gentleman, Clay Bertrand, would lead them. Was he part of a larger conspiracy? Easy for someone to conjecture that someone making such a request of Andrews had a vested interest in Oswald related to something. But what? As I mentioned in an earlier episode, Garrison formally launched his investigation in late 1966, and one of the first things he did was to try and locate this character, Clay Bertrand, and he knew Dean Andrews fairly well. The legal community was small enough in New Orleans, and Jim Garrison had a personal relationship with Andrews going way back, and Andrews actually was even an assistant DA in those days. People did double duty then. Garrison's team, working very quietly, began to search the French Quarter for this man, Bertrand. And it wasn't long before, at least as Garrison puts it, they were finding a great deal of individuals who knew that the name Clay Bertrand was a pseudonym. And it wasn't long before, at least as Garrison puts it, they were finding a great number of individuals who knew that the name Clay Bertrand was a pseudonym, an alias for a famous New Orleans resident, Clay Shaw. Shaw was head of the International Trademark, retired now. He was a leading member of the community, and he had helped foster a movement to restore and preserve many of the historic houses and structures within the French Quarter. He was a man of some stature in New Orleans and its community. Their trouble in the DA's office was trying to get someone who would actually stand up and testify to this fact. You see, Shaw was a homosexual, and we are talking about an era where one's sexual proclivity was not advertised, and especially if you were a 
homosexual. New Orleans was a place where you could get lost in the quarter at night and still live your other life undisturbed in the daytime. And an alias was an easy way to make it just a little harder for people to identify you and connect you with who you were in the daytime, so to speak. From the secret start of the formal investigation, which began around December 1966 up through February 1967, over a period of about three months, Garrison assembled a close-knit team from his staff and they began to fan out. Garrison knew that he had to prove a conspiracy and at least in the beginning, a fresh reassessment of all angles of the murder case including the events in Dallas. In his view, it was all relevant and fair game to reassess. In fact, it was essential. They would go to Dallas. They would go to faraway places such as New York, and they would track down witnesses and follow up on leads. And they went to other locales too, as more intelligence on the ground was piling up and linking things. And yet, So were the rumblings in New Orleans that something was afoot. The investigative activity had been substantial enough that rumors of it had caught the attention of two local reporters working for the State's Times, a local paper. Their names were Rosemary James and Jack Dempsey. Jim Garrison would assign Lou Ivon, one of his team's principal investigators, to develop a relationship with David Ferry, in the hopes that Ferry could become a witness capable of telling the entire story, or at least linking it all together. The early discussions that resulted from re-engaging with Ferry in this current phase over this time frame led Garrison and Ivan to believe that was a true possibility. Garrison would read on in the documents and get to the references to 544 Camp Street, an address that was identified in the Warren report as having been stamped on Oswald's Fair Play for Cuba pamphlets. Garrison himself would wander on down to that address and gaze over these nearby buildings, and he realized that 544 Camp Street was also known as 531 Lafayette Street, the same building with a separate entrance. And it was actually the building where Guy Bannister's office was located. And it was right in the heart of the part of the city where various elements of the intelligence community had their offices. The CIA, the Offices for Naval Intelligence. These and other facts began to tie together in Garrison's own mind the entire story. They would re-engage in talks with Jack Martin. As you recall, the man who had originated so much of the original investigation after being pistol-whipped by Bannister. After hearing the rumblings that an investigation might have commenced, the reporters, Rosemary James and Dempsey, after obtaining approval from John Wilds, their editor, they approached Garrison for an interview. Garrison would deny that request, and that led James and Dempsey to take a different approach. They began to investigate expenditures contained in travel vouchers submitted to the city by the DA's office in order to see if there were any indications that might lead them to the answer about these alleged surreptitious investigative activities. 
And sure enough, what they came across amongst $8,000 of expenditures was quite revealing. Expenditures supporting trips and other activities that clearly gave them the answers to what they were looking for. Garrison was conducting an investigation, and it sure did look like that investigation related to the murder of the president. It was not long after that that they would have enough to break the story. They confronted Garrison with it, and he did not confirm or deny it. And ultimately, they published their findings on February 17, 1967. What Rosemary James and her colleagues would produce would turn out to be a local exclusive, but it was one that had worldwide headline implications to the media. Life had been running around the town, and the local paper had scooped them. Rosemary James was not a garrison protagonist. And later that year, she and Jack Wardlaw would write a book about the garrison investigation entitled Plot or Politics. It would almost become primer reading over the next couple of years for worldwide members of the press to absorb as they made their way into New Orleans to cover the trial as it unfolded. Garrison would probably tell you that the timing of that news break was unfortunate. Lou Ivon, who had been developing a relationship with David Ferry, received a phone call from Ferry the moment that the investigation hit the papers. And he would say to Lou Ivon, do you know what this means? I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man now. Ferry was deteriorating mentally and emotionally, and the DA's office knew it. But they were in some level of dilemma as to whether or not they should charge Ferry immediately and complicate the extraction of more facts from him or simply continue to work with him at that moment as a witness. For them, he was a key participant, and this decision was critical. Almost at the moment that Garrison's team was debating what to do with Ferry, during a team meeting, they would receive a phone call and be apprised of Ferry's death. It took the whole team for a pause. They moved quickly to get to his apartment and secure evidence and determine what happened. The coroner's report listed the cause of death as a brain or, more particularly, a berry aneurysm. But he left two apparent suicide notes typed and keenly placed. Well, they certainly read like suicide notes, but the coroner, perhaps, at least in Garrison's view, did not undertake certain essential testing to determine the exact cause of death. Was it the natural cause, the aneurysm? Or was it a suicide implied by the notes? Still, was it a murder? Ferry had just expressed concern over his own safety, and Garrison had his doubts that his demise was a result of natural causes. There was no doubt that this was a moment of inflection for Garrison in terms of substantial evidence, because he had little. And as for principles to charge, well, he had little of that as well. Oswald was now dead, Bannister was now dead, and now Ferry was dead. Some members of Garrison's close-knit investigative team felt that this was the exact moment at which he should have made the decision to shut things down. He had the perfect reason to shut the investigation down. Why didn't he? 
Well, what happened next would change the trajectory of these episodes. You see, Garrison did exactly the opposite. He hit the gas, and he did it after receiving the next witness tip. You see, Ferry was relatively well-known locally in some circles, and Ferry's death was well-publicized in New Orleans. And so a young man named Perry Russo saw the news about Ferry's death and as a result, almost immediately reached out to Garrison's office, indicating that he knew Ferry and that he had things to share. That would lead Garrison to send Andrew Mumu Schiambra, an assistant DA in Garrison's office, to interview Perry Russo. And on the basis of information that Russo provided about the conspiracy and identification of Clay Shaw as being part of it and identifying Shaw as Clay Bertrand, well, eventually they would have a story in hand from Russo that was the core of the conspiracy charge. That Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald had all been there at a party one night where they laid out the plans for a triangulation crossfire event to be effectuated with high-powered rifles and in which there would be a getaway out of the country. And Ferry was to be the pilot because he had experience to do that. Garrison's team would also come across a body of evidence that placed Ferry and Oswald and Shaw as well, essentially together in Clinton, Louisiana, as Oswald sought a job at the mental hospital there in that town. And Oswald ended up in a voter registration line. More on that later. A whole host of credible witnesses in Clinton put Ferry, Shaw, and Oswald there and in some instances together in Clinton. Later, the House Select Committee on Assassinations would review these witnesses and deem them to be credible and that this encounter was real and that it did further the identified links between Oswald, Ferry, and Shaw. However, it should be noted that what exactly they were doing together in Clinton on that trip, or perhaps more importantly, why they were doing it, has never been definitively established. Although the thrust of the trip seems to have been to secure Oswald a job at the local mental hospital there. Later, when we expand on this topic, we will also tell a little bit more about the strange story of Rose Jeremy. Within less than a week of Ferry's death, Garrison, on March 1st, 1967, would arrest Clay Shaw and charge him with conspiracy to murder President John F. Kennedy. This was done against the initial exhortations of one of his principal investigators and one of his lead assistant DAs, James Alcock. Garrison was concerned that Shaw himself might be a target for elimination, and that played into his motivations to move quickly to charge Shaw. A grand jury had already been impaneled and had been taking testimony of witnesses related to the conspiracy investigation. But Garrison, under the circumstances, took the unusual step of presenting the case in advance to a panel of three judges who presided over a preliminary hearing. And so, on March 17th, after four days of listening to evidence presented in that preliminary hearing, the panel voted affirmatively that Garrison had sufficient evidence to move forward with an indictment of Clay Shaw. 
their decision actually would have allowed Garrison to go ahead and indict Shaw without going to the grand jury. But instead, Garrison still took the evidence to the grand jury, and shortly thereafter, the grand jury handed down the indictment of Clay Shaw. And yes, there were concerns that the hand-picked grand jury was biased in favor of the DA's office. But aren't they always, to some extent, more likely to believe law enforcement than those that are charged? And remember, at the end of the day, that's only the preliminary step. The next step is to actually have a trial. James Kirkwood had many suspicions about this grand jury, and he wrote the following. It was called the Labiche Grand Jury after its foreman, Albert Labiche. And the mention of that body brings shudders to most lawyers and knowledgeable folk in uh, New Orleans. When you speak to anyone who appeared before it, the response is much stronger. Bill Gervich would later say to Kirkwood, there were 12 members of the Labiche Grand Jury, handpicked by Judge Baggert. Ten were white and two were colored. Of the ten whites, seven were members of the same athletic club, the same athletic club Jim Garrison used as a second office. All of them were legionnaires. The two colored men were not eligible to belong to either the legion or the club. In the judge's chambers, behind his desk, is a large framed photograph, black and white, taken in the White House. In the center is John F. Kennedy, the president. On one side is Judge Baggert in his Legion uniform. Garrison hauled many an ancillary witness or antagonist into the grand jury, and one of them was one of his principal investigators, Bill Gervich. Gervich had resigned in June of 1967, and he had made allegations against Garrison in connection with the probe. And in the process of making those statements, he made remarks offensive to the grand jury which prompted the grand jury to make some challenging statements to Gervich during his grand jury testimony. It was telling. And in reading all of it, it doesn't appear to be a milquetoast grand jury group, at least not to me, based on what I read. Whether they had a cozier relationship with Garrison than they should have is, of course, at this point in history, totally moot particularly since the three-judge panel sealed the deal anyway. Regarding the indictment of Clay Shaw in advance of the grand jury, well, some of this was mechanics, and some of the mechanics was perhaps just histrionics. Obviously, to ensure that the politics of indicting Clay Shaw would be seen as done in the most objective of ways, not a vendetta by Garrison, and certainly not something of that nature in light of the severity and weightiness of the charge. But sadly, though, the proof is always in the details, and apparently four days of preliminary hearings produced something that was quite different in the minds of those judges than was produced at trial. I am surprised in some ways that it actually got past the panel of judges, given how little evidence was actually presented at trial. Within weeks of Shaw's indictment, the CIA would issue its then surreptitious but now infamous memo on how to defend the Warren Commission and engage in the all-out media exercise to discredit the conspiracy theorists. You just heard me read that CIA memo in the last episode. The Clay Shaw case would not go to trial until February 29th, 
1969. And so some two years would pass as Shaw prepared his defense and Garrison, in that time frame, would begin to fill the forces bearing down on him and his case against Shaw. Gervich would quit Garrison's investigative team on June 27, 1967. But before he did, he would fly to New York and secretly meet with Bobby Kennedy, a connection made through the Kennedy confidant and investigator, Walter Sheridan. Gervich would tell Kennedy directly that Garrison had nothing, that the case lacked direct evidence linking anyone to the killing of the president. Gervich would make possibly spurious allegations that Garrison ordered him and another member of the investigative team to arrest and beat up Walter Sheridan. They resisted the order, according to Gervich. Walter Sheridan would subsequently go to work for NBC in this intervening two-year period, and he produced an expose show that aired on national television on June 19, 1967, and that was designed to discredit Garrison and his investigation of the Clay Shaw case. The NBC special was so egregiously one-sided that Garrison fought back, and he asked for equal airtime one hour, and he was eventually granted 30 minutes on national television for a rebuttal. He did a good job, and the direct thrust by NBC and Walter Sheridan to shut him down with their special had ironically now resulted in propelling Garrison onto primetime television coverage. Garrison's rebuttal appeared on NBC about a month later on July 15, 1967. Two witnesses who appeared on the NBC expose, John Cankler and Miguel Torres, were part of a bevy of stars to be paraded on the expose with the intention to take down the Garrison investigation. That bevy also included Fred Lehmans, an operator of a Turkish bath in New Orleans, whom Garrison claims to have not known about or even ever met until the NBC expose aired. And there was another interviewee, Don Jordan, as well. John Cankler was a cellmate in prison with Vernon Bundy. Bundy was another witness for the prosecution. He was a heroin addict who was set to testify that he had seen Shaw and Oswald together. Cankler claimed that while they were both in prison, Bundy confided in him. And Bundy allegedly told Cankler that the story he told to the grand jury was not true. That is, that it was untrue that Bundy had actually seen Shaw and Oswald together. In the case of Miguel Torres, he would tell his own damning story on the NBC show, that among other things, the DA's office had offered him a three-month supply of heroin and a vacation in Florida. If only he would testify that Clay Shaw made indecent advances toward him. After the expose, Garrison would haul both of these men, Miguel Torres and John Cankler, in front of the Orleans grand jury and ask them to repeat, under oath, the stories and assertions that they had made on national television during the NBC expose. They would decline to answer the questions and they would plead the Fifth Amendment at the grand jury proceedings. 
So on this one, for all those suspect about Garrison's aggressive tactics and use of the grand jury and the use of perjury charges to compel the truth, well, you really have to appreciate the animal that Garrison was dealing with in that circumstance. Men who live on the edge of the seedy world that these witnesses lived in are no match for either NBC or Garrison. There was influence going on everywhere, overtly and covertly. It was war. In fact, it's quite clear that Garrison's investigative staff was infiltrated by opposing forces. It's been said that up to nine individuals over the course of the investigation were disloyal in their efforts, either originally sent directly by others or eventually helping others after being persuaded to do so. I am sure that these nine came about through a myriad of forces, including the influence of actually many journalists and perhaps the government itself through the CIA and other governmental agencies with a clear interest and stated interest in destroying the investigation. Perhaps one of the most damaging is the work of Tom Bethel. He was a teacher who arrived from the UK to study the world of jazz in New Orleans, but he had offered and Garrison had accepted his help in the investigation. Bethel would become disenchanted. At some point in the investigation and in anticipation of departing Garrison's investigative team, Bethel prepared a detailed list of the potential witnesses and what they might be testifying about. Such a thing had the potential to become a particularly useful document to Shaw's defense team in light of the rules of the court in Louisiana in those days. You see, the prosecution could put witnesses on the stand with little advance notice to the defendant and his defense team, a critical advantage to the prosecution. Without proper advance notice and study, Defense teams are often without the proper information necessary to cross-examine a witness. As Tom Bethel prepared for the departure from Garrison's team, he surreptitiously delivered this document to Clay Shaw's lawyers. Nowhere would it prove to be more relevant than the cross-examination of Charles Spiesel, the New York accountant. Without it, there may never have been the chance to ferret out the problems with this witness. Problems that, when identified and addressed in cross-examination, would result in this witness being reduced to rubble and a small nuclear explosion of sorts occurring inside the case the Garrison was making. More on that later. Garrison, with his newfound fame through the comedian Mort Saul, also got a chance to make his way onto The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson one of the most widely watched nighttime shows at that time in the country. The show aired on January 31st, 1968, and it was a tumultuous interview with Carson. But it was notable, and all it did was bring even greater attention and notoriety to Garrison. After the state's item revealed the potentially unauthorized use of funds by the DA's office to conduct the investigation, and the increasing political pressure being put on Garrison to cease and desist, there was a need to find alternative sources to fund the investigation, private funds that were out of the purview of the public realm. 
Well, Garrison accomplished this through a group known as Truth or Consequences. It was founded by three wealthy New Orleans businessmen, Willard E. Robertson, Joseph M. Ralt, and Cecil M. Shillstone. You see, the initial idea was to jumpstart the financial support by gathering initial $100 pledges from 50 local New Orleans businessmen. But given the expediency and needs of the investigation, the bulk of the funding quickly became the financial purview of at least one of the original three founding members, with one of those members, Willard E. Robertson, contributing some $70,000, including $30,000 of that amount in the form of a loan that together was to help advance sufficient funds needed for the investigation until a more broader donation base was attained. As you heard during another episode of this podcast, Garrison sought private funding in a myriad of ways outside of the public venue and apparently got it from places like Richard Gerstein in South Florida, the DA there. It should be noted that the American Bar Association Code of Ethics now prohibits private funding of public prosecutors in addition to other legal prohibitions that exist today against the practice that were not present in our country during that era. We'll talk more about the Truth or Consequences Committee in a later episode, but it should be noted that these funds and the potential conflicts that came with this source of funding were a major point of discussion at the Christenberry hearing that would occur in 1971 as Shaw, even after the acquittal, in the criminal trial, was engaged in legal action to enjoin Garrison from further pursuit of actions against him, as Garrison just wouldn't let go. At that moment, he was pursuing perjury charges against Shaw. Later in this overview, we will address the Kristen Berry hearing and its implications. As Garrison's national notoriety grew, he would engage in a few lectures and certainly some other interviews in this intervening two-year time frame, the time frame between Shaw's indictment and his trial, including a rather famous one with Playboy magazine, always a purveyor of edgy material, and this subject was perfectly suited for that. In fact, that interview is so revealing and so helpful, I believe, in countering some of the misinformation regarding the case that we are going to feature a separate episode on the Playboy interview. So stay tuned. I may even play Garrison in that interview. (laughs) Who knows? Haven't decided yet. You'll also recall that in an earlier episode, we have already featured the audio from one of Garrison's lectures. In the beginning, Garrison had followers in high places in the media. Take, for instance, Jim Fellon. At the DA's invitation, the Saturday Evening Post reporter Jim Fellon came to New Orleans thinking that he had the inside track to the story of the century. Instead, he became the first outsider to discover what he believed to be major discrepancies in Perry Russo's story. Perry Russo the star witness for the prosecution. Life magazine also had a similar position for a time. In November 1966, Garrison told the journalist David Chandler that he had important information on the case. 
Chandler told Richard Billings of Life Magazine, and in January 1967, the Life Magazine reporter arranged a meeting with Garrison. Billings told Garrison that the top management at Life had concluded that Kennedy's assassination had been a conspiracy and that his investigation was moving in the right direction. Billings suggested that he work closely with Garrison. According to Garrison, the magazine would be able to provide me with technical assistance and we could develop a mutual exchange of information. Richard Billings was one of a select few journalistic insiders to the DA's JFK probe, and he was a longtime supporter of Garrison's. But as far as Life magazine goes, it was not long thereafter that there arose competing camps, competing internally, competing internal thoughts about whether Garrison truly had something or not, or whether it was real or just a sham. Billings, the senior man in the pecking order at Life on this project, was a supporter. David Chandler, the other man on the ground in New Orleans, began to believe that the Garrison investigation lacked any substance. And for a time, Billings' influence overcame Chandler's. Patricia Lambert tells the story well that on the day after the arrest of Clay Shaw, a group of Life's senior staff went to dinner in Miami and debated heavily who was right about Garrison, Billings or Chandler. Holland McCombs, who was said to be a legendary Time editor, was there that night at that dinner, and he was a man that had known Clay Shaw personally for more than 15 years. In the legend that is the dinner of that night, he supposedly scratched out a check with an unspecified amount on it, and said his money was on Chandler's position. And he offered the bet to anyone at the dinner. There were apparently no takers. And apparently, these histrionics were enough to sway life's managing editor, George Hunt, to begin the withdrawal of support for Garrison. It would take several more months before life's withdrawal of that support would be complete. But in fact, the withdrawal occurred and Garrison would publicly acknowledge it. According to Patricia Lambert, David Chandler was once a close friend of Garrison's. But when Chandler worked at New Orleans Magazine, she alleges that Chandler uncovered what he believed to be a situation where members of the DA's office were taking bribes. It was a turning point in their relationship. Who was right here may be important, But what is obvious is that after an allegation like that, men don't tend to be bosom buddies anymore. And who knows how that played out in the dynamics of the life decision I just portrayed. There is always more to the story that is underneath the covers. Lambert goes on to tie this to the core of the diversionary reaction that Garrison undertook to pivot the attention away from this and at least one other case a case involving a stripper that had organized crime implications. Pivot away the attention on the DA's office, away from all of this, and onto something more sensational. That was the theory that Patricia Lambert puts forth. Well, in that case, at least, I couldn't agree more. What could be more sensational than investigating the murder of the President of the United States? 
And of course, all of this was very well exacerbated by Garrison's evolving theories of the day, rotating and evolving like the moon going around the earth, perhaps changing in similar 24-hour intervals. Chandler went out, and like him, most of the rest of the media lost confidence, and so did Felon. And the final straw for Felon was a serious controversy that arose over the way that evidence was extracted from Perry Russo, the star and key witness. Felon's involvement at this key juncture in interviewing Russo and deciding that Garrison had made a major mistake. It was a critical swing in the opposite direction for Garrison when it came to media support. Garrison's office had administered truth serum, which turned out to be a highly controversial technique for extracting the truth from witnesses, and it left the DA's office open to great criticism, suggesting that it was actually a technique to plant answers and bend the truth inside the head of what would ostensibly be a highly vulnerable witness open to suggestions as a result of the truth serum. And there is one more, perhaps even more important element here. The memo prepared by Assistant DA Andrew Mumu Schiambra of his initial interview of Russo, well, that memo failed to include any mention of the party at Ferry's house where all of the conspirators discussed the plot, where Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald purported to all be present and in which there was a discussion of the assassination, including the use of high-powered rifles and the catching of the president in triangulation crossfire. All of that would come later, after Russo was subjected to the truth serum technique. And, oh, there was much more to this whole story, including lie detector tests and hypnosis, too. These facts about the extraction of testimony from Russo, well... After interviewing Russo in the presence of another life employee for Felon, that was enough to close up shop on the garrison train. This whole drama is worth a short episode to explain in more detail, and we'll plan on doing that. Like all these controversies, it seems to be racked with bulletproof point and bulletproof counterpoint evidence. A tremendous ball of twine. Garrison would lose his best investigator early, off the team, Frank Klein. According to Garrison, he had a brilliant mind. But Klein couldn't get along with Pershing Gervais, another investigator on the team and longtime friend and military buddy of Garrison's. Garrison had to make a choice, and he did. And he kept his longtime friend, and it was not long after the decision that he would later regret it. And later... Gervais would succumb to some seedy temptations, making the choice even more dubious. More to come on that. Oh, there is so much more. It was the big easy, and the whole thing would not have been kosher without a genuine bribe, or should I say bribes, in the middle of things. The allegations were that the DA's office attempted to bribe three potential witnesses. Alan Babouf, Fred Lehmans, and Miguel Torres. More to come on the details of these charges. But wait a minute. The DA's office were not the only ones entangled in allegations of bribery. Garrison and his team would counter that as part of the NBC expose, Walter Sheridan would attempt to bribe 
Perry Russo. Garrison would do what he did best. He would call Sheridan to testify before the grand jury about it. Sheridan would fight the request to testify under oath and take his fight all the way through the Louisiana Supreme Court, where ultimately Sheridan was compelled to testify. Nobody, not even Bobby Kennedy's personal emissary, was going to escape Garrison's use of the powerful perjury charge, or at least the compulsion to testify under oath in order to keep people honest. Nothing dishonest about the use of the grand jury, by the way, for that purpose, as it was pertaining to the investigation. There were newspaper articles, numerous articles across the country, contemporaneously, where Russo publicly stated that indeed these exhortations and advances by Sheridan had taken place. After all these shenanigans, eventually, about two years later, it would become time to have the trial. Thank you for listening to episode 155 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.